All right, I have an admittedly insane idea, but if I don't ask you this, it's just, uh, you know, it's gonna haunt me the rest of my life. I want to keep talking to you, but I feel like we have some kind of, uh, connection. So listen, here's the deal. This is what we should do. You should get off the train with me here in Vienna and come check out the town. What? Come on, it'll be fun. Come on. <laughs> What would we do? Um, I don't know. All I know is I have to catch an Austrian Airlines flight tomorrow morning at 9.30, and I don't really have enough money for a hotel, so I was just going to walk around, and it'd be a lot more fun if you came with me. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Richard Linklater's Before Films. It's very romantic. I usually don't like that, but it's uh, really well written. Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. You're both stars. Don't forget these podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Why are you telling me all this? I don't know. I'm, I, I, should, I, I shouldn't have. Listener discretion is advised. To our one and only night together and uh, the hours that remain. Today we're discussing Before Midnight, starring Ethan Hawke, Julie Delpy, Seamus Davy Fitzpatrick, Jennifer Pryor, Charlotte Pryor. Who? Yeah, more than two names at this point. <laughs> Walter Lassily and a few others, directed by Richard Linkletter. This is Arnie, the now playing co-host who really hopes we are done before midnight. Stuart in LA. This is Jacob, and I'm going to give you all a little sex tip. Kissy, kissy, titty, titty, pussy. <laughs> I, I was wondering if that had practical applications. <laughs> There's more truth in this movie in many regards than I think we will ever want to admit. Gotta admit, guys, nine years came a whole lot faster this time than it seemed to between before sunrise and sunset. I didn't know it was time. When I found out they had made a sequel to this, I was like, no, it couldn't be. That movie only came out a couple years ago same here i'm like oh so they're not going with this every x number of years anymore <laughs> it was like forever <laughs> when the first one came out i was in college between the first one and the second one i changed from college to grad school and then from grad school to a working professional between the second one and the third one i had a different job <laughs> well, it is a sign you're getting older. That time goes by a lot quicker. It's even discussed in this movie, and I couldn't agree more, but it is exactly the same length of time. But yeah, I did see this movie when it came out. I actually got very fortunate. I saw a pre-release screening with a Richard Linkletter Q&A right afterwards. So he was there. He talked about how they made the movie, whether there would be a fourth movie, all that stuff. We'll get into it as it applies. Very nice. This one... It, of course, came out in big cities before it came out here. I think it premiered at Sundance early, early in the year. Yeah. And after spending $200 and driving eight hours last time, <laughs> and remember, I loved the movie on the re-review, but I was kind of lukewarm on it when I saw it in theaters. I decided, no, this one will come to me. And it did. It was in my town for exactly one week, and I prioritized, and that weekend went out and saw it in theaters. And again, we had talked about doing a retrospective for it, and I walked out of theaters going, God damn it, there's so much of this movie to really fucking talk about, 
shame we'll never get a chance to review it or have to wait at least nine years to do so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 2022, here it comes. But yeah, I agree. It was a series I never imagined now playing would cover, but so grateful that we are because, yeah, I had a very intense, positive response to all of them, but uh, wanted to do it last year when this was in theaters. I think it might work out best that we're tying in with Boyhood here this year, but uh, I'm seeing this for the second time for this podcast. And once again, I'm the newbie. I'm glad I didn't have to wait nine years. I really liked that last one. I wanted to see where they were at this point. I wanted to see the next installment. But did you? I was pissed when this one was coming out because I knew very little going in, but just the most basic plot synopsis told me, they had been together now since the last movie. It was nine years. The thing that I loved about the first two movies together was that we were seeing all of their time together, literally in that second movie. I mean, being in real time, but we saw them on that first night in Vienna. Then we saw them in Paris. If they'd been together for that nine years, it felt to me like a betrayal of the concept. I'm like, how are they going to fill us in on what has occurred in the nine years since their reunion in Paris? I went in just a little bit thinking this no longer fit the mold. Well, yeah, the formula had been right. It's confined to a certain amount of time. We don't know whether they'll have any time before or after. And they got to be in Europe walking and, and being in love and thinking about the future and the past. They do end up doing more of the formula than it looks like, but they've definitely changed the way that it feels. It's going to be 45 minutes before these characters are alone and walking around. And I'm good with that. You know, again, this is about people aging, about these relationships and how they grow or evolve. And so, yeah, let's change that formula. It's still pretty much the same formula, but I liked in that last film, you know, we didn't know what Jesse had been up to or Celine. We had to fill that in by listening to the dialogue. So I was looking forward to that. How can we catch up in nine years through a single conversation that these characters are going to have? I guess I didn't feel like I was missing them as much this time because I had seen the actors and the directors work more often as well. You know, Ethan Hawke became a mainstay of the Jason Blum horror movies. You know, he is good friends with Jason Blum. He did The Purge as a favor. He was in Sinister. He did some horror vampire thing here. He's actually worked a lot. I've seen him more in this last nine years than I did in the turn of the century. Wow, I kind of felt like he'd fallen away. I did see him in The Purge, and other than that, I can't really think of much I've seen him in since Before Sunset. After Before Sunset, I saw Assault on Precinct 13, and then I believe nothing until before midnight oh wow and the real surprise is i've seen delpy as well she kind of stole this formula she was like i'm not gonna wait nine years to cash in on the success of before sunset she got an oscar nomination keep in mind they got writing credit that movie got an oscar nomination for adapted screenplay and she kind of said i'm gonna do my own thing she created her own character and has done two movies in a similar vibe. Two Days in Paris with Adam Goldberg, and Two Days in New York with Chris Rock. Adam Goldberg, I could see as a stand-in for Ethan Hawke. They both have kind of the goatee thing and thin white guy. Chris Rock, not so much. You know, that's the one I watched. It's the only one I've watched. They're lighter than the before. Before movies tend to be philosophical. They're dramatic. These are much more kind of comedy. Some of it's funny, but it can be kind of juvenile. I would say that if you're a fan of the before movies, you might enjoy it. But being a Chris Rock fan, I think I enjoyed Two Days in New York more for that reason. He's better than she is really in the movie. And Richard Linklater, I always follow his films. I feel like it was a lot of 
bombs for him, though. The Bad News Bears remake, Scanner Darkly wasn't Total Recall. God help him, he did some Zac Efron movie even I didn't see. (laughs) But he did have a hit with Jack Black. He did do Bernie. I don't know if you guys have seen that one, but I do endorse that one. I think that one's a strong film. I wouldn't say hit, Bob. (laughs) I'd say, you know, modest success, but I don't think that that classifies as a hit. A Scanner Darkly had at least more buzz around it than Bernie. You know what? In these days, indie movies, anyone going to see an indie movie in theaters is a hit. (laughs) I just want to point out, people don't really do that anymore. If it doesn't have big special effects, they wait until it comes out on DVD or streaming platforms. And Bernie ended up making $15, $16 million. I think that definitely classifies as an art house hit in 2010. But yeah, they were back. I guess I just wasn't as excited for my 20-year class reunion or 18-year class reunion as I was for my 10. But I was interested in where these characters had gone and what life would be like now that Ethan Hawke has completed his transformation into Tom Skerritt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're going to be talking about changing looks, and I do think Delpy is still going to be winning that race. She looks more and more attractive in each one, and he looks more and more gaunt, and right now I think he's about ready to take Johnny Smith to find the Castle Rock Killer. That's only just because we've covered the dead zone, but I admit that, yes, the boyishness I associated with him in his early days is completely gone. Yeah, if I hadn't just seen dead zone, I I was getting like a a Josh Brolin or something, just very gruff and rough looking. But, you know, no one wanted to spoil this. I heard good stuff from the critics and the early screenings, but it was always like, there was always some kind of vulture hanging around it. They're like, well... This one's different, you know, like they wanted to tell you that you could get the sense that like, yeah, they're together, but um, just go see it. I went into this movie pretty cold. I didn't know the plot. Arnie, I think you should go ahead and give it to them. But viewers that haven't seen the movie and plan to beware, there's a huge change up in the formula and it's going to come out in your plot summary. I don't even know if you could call this a romance film, quite honestly. The last two <laughs> have been romance films. This? Oh, I'm going to make an argument for it, so this should be fun. Okay, I'd like to hear it, because this is about as romantic as Kramer versus Kramer. From a certain perspective, <laughs> yes. It's been nine years since Celine and Jesse reunited in Paris. It's revealed they've been together ever since, Jesse divorcing his wife and moving to Paris to be with Celine. Now they have twin daughters. They're not married, but their daughters think they are. When the movie begins, they're finishing off a summer in Greece, joined by Jesse's son, Hank. Jesse's seeing Hank off at the airport to return to his mother, with whom Jesse has a strained relationship. Jesse feels guilty for not being more a part of Hank's life. Celine is under some stress of her own. She's still working as an environmentalist, but is considering a new job with the French government. The stresses between the two are kept under the surface as they spend the last day at the house of Patrick, a great writer who had invited Jesse as his guest. Then Celine and Jesse leave their daughters in the care of their friends, Stefanos and Adriani, to go into town where the other couple have bought them a night alone in a hotel. But there the tensions explode with Celine feeling Jesse is pressuring her to give up her job and move to the States to be with Hank. The argument escalates with each accusing the other of infidelity and finally ending when Celine says, I don't think I love you anymore and leaves. But Jesse goes to her at the cafe and the two seem to reconcile, though on shaky ground as credits roll. So yeah, I saw this movie with my wife. <laughs> Not recommended as an experience. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah. I think the before movies are very helpful to get couples to talk about things that maybe they don't normally do. This one probably is too, but it goes to some pretty dark places. 
Obviously, with the whole implication of midnight, yeah, it gets very dark indeed once the sun sets. And I also saw that midnight thing is just getting old, like, you know, when you're young. Yeah, you're up till sunrise. When you're old, you got kids. <laughs> I, I do really did see this as them just aging and not having that energy anymore. And I think that is a big part of it, trying to hold it together. You got kids. And it's even more complicated. I, I was shocked how this movie opens at this airport and Jesse having to say goodbye to his son. I, I Again, right away, I feel like all these films, maybe because I'm a dude, but I've always felt for Jesse. E even if I don't totally get his thing for Celine. I feel for Jesse, and this is heartbreaking, having to see his son leave him, and I guess he only sees him like Christmas and summers. The baton is passed, right? I mean, each movie does begin with this character just about to leave Europe, only now he's not leaving. It is Hank, his 14-year-old son. He's going back to live with his mother in Chicago. There's some lip service said about how she was a bitch after the divorce and intentionally moved out of New York brought him to Chicago to make him even further away from Jesse. And this regret, you know, last movie, it was regret for not having reconnected or exchanging phone numbers in Vienna. This time, the regret really seems to be, did we do the right thing about getting together? Yeah, not in regards to the sex or the romance. I mean, I think he definitely, anything that I suspected may or may not be true about his wife, both Jesse and Celine hate that woman in this film. But yeah, Jesse's really upset that he's leaving his son. And this departure, this inclusion of another person, really threw me the very first film. I'm like, what movie am I watching that he now has this son who's in the opening of the film? I thought the film would open with him and Celine or with their reunion. She's waiting outside as he sees Hank off. And it's not a short scene. It doesn't go on forever, but... It's like five minutes of just talking about maybe we'll Skype and maybe I'll come see your recital. And the kid's saying, don't come see my recital. It's just going to make mom mad and stress me out more. Yeah, what's interesting is that it's not reciprocated. We get the sense that it's very important that Jesse stays in communication with Hank. But Hank is 14 years old. He loves his father. He tells him that. I believe him. But he's more interested about what he can get at the gift shop. When he walks through the security gate, he does not look back. When he calls from the airplane, he's calling Celine. He is just not needing his dad the way that his dad needs him. And I think that's a lot of the motivation there. I think that's why one of the big thrusts of this movie is Jesse wants to be more in his son's life. The irony being his son's a teenager. And if he's anything like me as a teenager, the last thing he wants is more of his parents in his life. And maybe that's why Jesse feels he needs to be in his life. He even calls that out like he's never really felt that. But now, I guess because his son can't throw a baseball, he's like, he can't go into high school without knowing how to throw a ball. And I think that makes sense. You feel like teenage years, that's when your kids want to get away from you. And that's probably when you want to hold on to them the tightest because you know the kind of complications and hardships that happen in those teenage years. And it's really weird because we're so excited that he is living a life with Celine. He's not getting on an airplane and leaving her with his son. He is not splitting his time between Europe and the U.S. He committed. Whatever happened that got him divorced from his wife, he is now in Paris as a teacher, a sometime novelist, but he is there present in Celine's life. We're very happy about it. What's so funny about this movie, I guess it's an omen of things to come, is that these are two very unhappy people at the start of it. They're taking the fact that they're together for granted. They're all upset about careers and children. But Arnie, maybe you could talk about it. I know I've been in long-term relationships, and you get mired down with the day-to-day -day after a while. It's not all romance. You really do. You're talking about, you know, 
Bob stealing your stapler at work and like that's a three hour conversation. Yeah, I mean, the story that ends happy ends too quickly. You know, in the end, romance becomes taken for granted and you try to do things and you try to have dates and make special time and turn off the cell phone. But yeah, I'll say that between my day job and my podcasting and everything else, there's not the time that there used to be. There's a lot of dealing with, did this bill get paid? Have you called this person? What's the weekend agenda? And so in that way, it's a sad reflection of reality. Every rom-com ever that Jacob likes to make fun of me for watching, <laughs> this is how they really end. This is why I'm so interested. Is there a way to keep that magic going or is it doomed to fizzle out? That's why I'm finally I'm at the point where I want to be with this trilogy. Well, here's the thing. I don't think that they're breaking up until about 15 minutes into this movie. I mean, she's upset because she's still the environmental do-gooder and she's finding out that that's a lot more defeats than wins and she's considering a new job working for a jerk who gets things done. And you'd think... Well, okay, if you're thinking about changing your careers, that would free you to move and relocate your family. It seems like serendipity that Jesse is now saying, in a roundabout way, he never actually says it, but he implies that by wanting to be in Hank's life, he wouldn't mind being in Chicago. And so she calls it out before I'm prepared to call it out. This is where we break up. This is going to be something you're going to hold against me for the rest of the time that we're together until this marriage collapses because you are going to blame me for taking your kid away. Yeah, and that is really shocking to come so early on. And she even says, I'm surprised we lasted this long. It's crazy. She could definitely be overdramatic. We've seen this in her character. She has always been the more cynical one. I have felt like she has a crazy mother. We've never met her mother, but man, every time she's talking about her mother, I'm like, that woman sounds like she did this to you. <laughs> I feel like Celine got damaged by that neurosis. But yeah, she's much more quick to identify this as a major issue in their relationship. But it is a sign of things to come. This is a movie about, yeah, a possible ending of the romance that we've always wondered, would it last? And it's funny, though, because I don't take it that seriously at that time, because it kind of becomes comfortable. You know, they're joking about Jesse stealing the apple that was half-eaten and brown and yucky from their daughters and things, and they go to a shop together, they seem all happy, and while she says this is where it ends, I didn't realize this is where this was going, because there's really two ways. You can be... That happy couple that's just very comfortable around each other. And you can have these conversations and you say dramatic things, but you don't mean them and all that. But then you also have the opposite where, yeah, it's very strained, very tense. And I didn't realize that's what we were going into the first time I saw this movie. Yeah, you don't know where it's going to go. I mean, she calls it out. You get like this every time you have to see your son off. So is this just, is this a fight they have every time? And I, that's a question I'm going to ask at the end of this film. Is this a fight that they have every Christmas and summer when that son leaves? Because then they go on. Yeah, they're joking around. I love that scene where she's filming with her iPhone, him eating the apple and like documenting. This is when I explain to our girls when they're bulimic or anorexic. You're the one who caused it. I don't know. I, I found all that funny. And so, yeah, I don't know if this is just a heated moment or if this really is headed towards the end. We still like them. I think that's important is that even though something serious has emerged, and we are introduced with an idea that we never wanted to consider, that they might willingly choose 
to break up, that it won't be circumstance and fate that keeps them apart. I still feel like there is love and commitment and enough other things going on. I mean, there's just more distractions. There's more characters in this one. Each movie, you know, before sunrise, when you're young, you have time to just get off the train and go explore and do what you will. And then in before sunset, yeah, you're running out of time. You got to make this happen fast. Here, you don't get any time alone. And I think it's correct, even though it makes it feel weird. I think it's correct that we end up after this car ride, which is about 20 minutes of the movie, in a villa where there are several other people that keep this couple apart. I found that very confusing my first time watching it. I'm like, what is this villa? Where do they live? Do they live in Greece? All of this. It's more clear on the second watching that they've just had an extended vacation in Greece, staying at this villa. Really, I said in the first one that Celine kind of bugged me with her know-it-all attitude, but here it seems like Jesse has just become an over-intellectual douchebag. He spent all summer at the home of this great writer. They call each other men of letters because I know that's an honored phrase, but by the same time, little douchey. And he is working on a book entitled Temporary Cast Members of a Long-Running But Little Seen Production of a Play Called Fleeting. Whew, he's up his own asshole. You know what? I'm going to defend him because I, I remember the days when I was an aspiring writer. And yes, we'd sit around. Who could come up with the longest title for a book or the longest title for like a two-line pump? I identified with that is what I'll say. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and somewhat admirable that we have found out what kind of writer he has become. That yes, he wrote, we knew from the last movie, an idealized version of his night in Vienna. And then he wrote the sequel that his publishers would have wanted. The sequel in which he tells about his reunion in Paris through his fictional characters. But then he has set aside representations of him and Celine and tried to write something original. He's tried to write about other things that preoccupy him. And he's tried to go from being a romance novelist to being a serious literature writer. You know, I think that's tough. It's something that Ethan Hawke himself tried to do semi-successfully. I know that his later book was more well-received than The Hottest State, but it doesn't sound good. But then again, I don't feel like anytime artists talk about their craft that they sound good. You're going to sound self-involved. You're going to sound douchey because you're being tortured by first world problems. But I love that there's Stephanos in this. I mean, you've got two authors there and the old author is cheering the young author on. But Stephanos is a bicycle repairman, a well-read bicycle repairman. But I love that he's even like, yeah, I don't get your concept. What are you doing? You're trying too hard. I'm like you, Arnie. I, I still don't really get this setup. Why there's like the great writers and then the bicycle repairman. Like I talked about with rom-coms, you always got the quirky jobs with the couple here. We got the writer and the aspiring environmentalist. And yeah, this is one of the most privileged couples ever on film. I don't understand this setup, but again, I'm going with it. I, I know what Linklater's doing here. We're going to get different representations of relationships. And, and so I don't get why the bicycle repairman hangs out with these great writers, but I like that. You got to have the common man and, the, and the, the men of letters. Well, here's what's funny is Linklater allowed all the actors to participate in the script. In addition to Delpy and Hawk being co-writers, he asked the actor who played Stephanos, so you're going to be a writer as... The actor was like, no, I'll be a bicycle repairman. <laughs> and Linklater was like, okay, bicycle repairman, go with it. Yeah, I get the sense that they know him more for just being local. It's not a very populated area. Unlike the first two movies, they aren't in a major metropolitan city. 
they are in the countryside. And so he may just literally be the closest person they know. He comes over to play soccer. I don't think he or his wife has any kind of relationship by blood with Patrick. They're just friends. They're just neighbors, unlikely as it seems. But I'm with you, Jacob. I saw what they were doing here. All of a sudden, you've got a young couple newly in love like Jesse and Celine were in Before Sunrise. You've got a couple about their age who are on a very different track. They are trying to colonize each other. They seem to be second marriage, right? Like, she talks about how she's approaching this relationship differently. She's very forthcoming. She has no problem talking about her husband in front of her husband. Right, but they also say that they've been together for 16 years. So Mm. they've been together a lot longer than Jesse and Celine. If they were married before, it was fleeting. Yeah. Let me put it this way. Much like Celine, I get the sense that Ariadna likes to pretend that she's less committed than Stefanos. She seems like, well, I mean, they literally have a knife fight in this movie in the kitchen. (laughs) It's playful, but underneath there is a, a subtextual tension to their relationship. Yeah, there's this whole conversation around the table, and you have this young couple, Acolas and Anna. I guess Acolas is what? Patrick's grandson? There's some relationship there. Yes, he is definitely the writer's grandson. He has a blood relation. And she's an actress in a local play. And they're the, you know, the young, we're going to be rational, and we're very much in love, but we know it's not going to last forever. Even Patrick has that kind of sentimentality that oh you enjoy it while it lasts and i love like these glances that celine and jesse just keep giving each other as they listen to these things but i love this monologue that natalia this old woman who's friends with patrick's gives where she just starts talking about her husband and as she's starting to forget him it's like losing him all over again and i just think you get this sense that yeah she could try to be rational with love but in the end There is a force there, and so you get this young couple who's going to be very cold about love, and we'll enjoy it while it lasts, but I don't know, there's something about Natalia's monologue about losing her husband all over again and trying to remember those little things that, you know, that's that counterpoint to it, but it's it's not an obvious one. It's it's subtle how she brings that out and, and counterbalances the other's opinions. It is, but it's also very different than Patrick. The key here is I initially had assumed that Patrick was with Natalia because... I thought they were setting up couples, but Patrick talks about how he and his wife decided they were just going to live separate lives, and now she is gone. She's not dead, she's just left him, whereas you've got Natalia talking about how much she misses her dead husband, and I think it's showing two extremes of a relationship and where all the other couples could end up. You can either live for yourself and be together when it's convenient, or you can have that love like Natalia has that when the other person dies, and unless you're in a plane or car accident, somebody dies first, that is going to just be extraordinarily painful. The death is key because they've talked about it since they were 20-somethings. I mean, they talk about the future and death and, and it taking away, but it's all very theoretical, right? You know, it's, it's all imagined what death will be like. And later, Celine and Jesse will talk about who will die first and going to each other's funeral, what that would look like. But for this elderly couple, well, they're not a couple. These elderly people who are friends and maybe with benefits, it's a real thing. They have lost friends. They have lost people. And I do feel like that is the difference, is they can't be flippant about loss and death happening one day. It's happened to them. And I think that that's all the difference and how they perceive love. And again, that perceive, 
that's a big deal. You know, there's always been these crazy story ideas that Jesse has had that I really feel like his link letter just like, oh, I had this idea for a movie and it's no way it's going to work out. So I'll have Jesse talk about it as one of his books. But, you know, that book with that big old long title, you said, Arnie, it was about people with different mental disorders all watching the same movie and how they view that movie through their different brain waves. And it's, they're all experiencing the same thing, but it's all perceived differently. And I think that's a big theme here, like more so than the other books that Jesse talks about in the other films, that this is about perceptions and they're either going to keep Jesse and Celine together or bring them apart. And we're seeing those perceptions coming apart at this point because of Hank, because Celine wants to go into politics and take this job. And so, yeah, perceiving and how we perceive love is a big deal in this film. By the same token, I have to say all of these conversations around this table, while I was interested in them, they're so obviously metaphors and parables for what Jesse and Celine are going through that this whole thing comes across a bit pretentious. The other films had these philosophical debates that were in certain ways metaphorical or relating to Celine and Jesse at that time, but never so obviously. Here, I'm a little disappointed. I think they could have been a bit more subtle about it. I don't necessarily agree. I could see, to me, it doesn't feel any more inorganic than walking into a church and talking about God. That feels inorganic too, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My point is that they've always been influenced by what's around them. It's just different this time because they're actual talking individuals that they have a relationship with. I guess it's because the stories that are being told by the other couples are so relating to where Celine and Jesse are and the whole themes of the movie that it feels less realistic. You're talking about it's on the nose. I disagree. I feel like they're trying to connect. Everyone is trying to define what a longevity in relationship could be for this young couple. I mean, Celine ends up having what comes off a little nastier than maybe she intended, this story about how men are closet machos, and that if you want to keep him, you just have to pretend to be a bimbo and let them win the game. I love the way she plays a bimbo, though. That actually works for me. I get really turned <laughs> on by Julie Delpy when she uses that voice. <laughs> and I bought it from Ethan Hawke. I think he was actually into that. Of course, he's playing along, but I think like he actually liked that. And he likes seeing that softer side, that bimbo side of Celine. She comes off very cold to me in this movie with the way she's kind of flippant about Hank and about Jesse wanting to be with his son. I, I don't know. When she has these moments where she acts like a bimbo, I think she's much more relatable, as weird as that is to say, because she wants to be a big feminist in this film. But she comes off very cold at times, and I do like some of these moments where she's more playful. It's also one of the few times she's funny. This isn't funny to me. This is uh, anger. We will find out. She's not just imagining some American bimbo. This is a real person in her head that Jesse has slept with on book tour in Washington, D.C. She calls her later an Emily Bronte type, but she has read emails from some fan, and this is a mocking of a woman that presumably Jesse slept with and stepped out on Celine with. Eight years earlier, give or take. Mm, no, I think this is a book tour for the third book. No, it was when the twins were just born. Which, they're only six, right? Okay, so six years earlier. Yeah. Telling you, women, go with your husbands on those book tours. Don't let them alone. I actually know several authors and celebrities whose wives do that for that very reason. Yeah, I don't think he's big enough to pay for the entourage and someone had to stay <laughs> and take care of the kids. I mean, that's a big part of this. What's interesting about Celine, you called her cold. I would say she's brittle. She's angry. She's resentful. 
She has spent her life fighting, being a caregiver, trying to do right for the world. I think she's ready to have a little more self-time. She's resented how much she's given away to let other people take advantage of her. And I think that she is mad that she was talked into going to Greece, as nice as it's been to hang with these couples, but watch her husband spend all day talking about theoretical books while she's had to pick the garden and chop up the grapes for the salad and, you know, all of that stuff. I think that we will see, as the movie progresses, how angry she really is at his position of privilege. I do find it funny how they've fallen into very stereotypical gender roles, because I wouldn't have seen that with either of those characters, honestly. Mm -hmm. Jesse seemed so in touch with his own emotions that he seemed like he might be less the macho man that Selene is claiming he is, and Celine being an environmentalist and on her own and never did get married, very independent, didn't think she'd fall into the classical female role. And while that may help with these two characters so that the audience can more clearly identify with them and see themselves on the screen, I find it funny that Celine has become the primary caretaker of the children and the primary homekeeper, as well as having a full-time job where she's excelling. While Jesse, being a writer, I know so many writers who are the stay-at-home dads because they can write and take care of their kids. But he doesn't seem to have gotten into that level of homekeeping with his writing. He is more about talking about his theoretical novels, and I'm not even sure how many he's written. There are three books in 18 years. Yeah, he wrote three books, two based on Celine, one that sounds like it wasn't a commercial success, possibly not even an artistic success. And one that we've talked about that he's trying to hatch. Not a huge productivity. You know, he teaches a couple other classes at the American school. He is largely living off her. I kind of thought the same thing, and it makes him look bad. I did listen to the commentary, and the commentary said that it, his two books were successful enough that it actually bought their house in Paris. So... The first two. Yeah. I took it that he was successful. Later on, some random Greek person's going to ask him to sign a couple of books. So, I don't know. If random Greek people have read your book, I take that as a sign of success. If random Greek people are listening to this podcast, we have made it. <laughs> if a publisher is taking the time to translate, come on, that's a commitment there. No, listen to what I'm saying. The Celine-inspired books were huge hits, but what he's done afterwards has floundered. He tried to write a book without Celine. It's the one with the incredibly long title. I don't get the sense that that was a hit. And I don't get the sense that this idea he's working on now is going to be a huge bestseller. I think in, in aspiring to be an artist, it costs you a lot in commercial cachet. And I don't think his publishers are probably too happy that he spent all summer long in Greece pondering a book about brain abnormalities. Could be a little reflection of Linkletter's own career in some ways there. I definitely think that Jesse has always been a mouthpiece for Linkletter. He is 10 years older than Jesse. And originally he wanted to cast an actor his own age in the part. But he said in the Q&A, he likes having the jump on them. He knows what's going to happen to them 10 years before they do. So he's working <laughs> on the sequel right now. And in eight or nine years, he'll know exactly what they're just learning. But yeah, I mean, she has to take care of everything. Later on, this was the one line that made things really uncomfortable between me and Marjorie. 
is men still believe in there are fairies who pick up their socks and stock the refrigerator. And Marjorie wouldn't let that drop for like a month. Oh, look, the fairy refilled your coffee cup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you want to make sure you have a stable relationship if you're going to watch this with a significant other. Yeah, still happily married, but oof. But Ariada and... Stefanos knows something that Celine and Jesse just aren't tapping into. Good sex can make a lot of this tension temporarily dissolve, right? They've bought them a night away, and they've given them the opportunity to recreate the magic, the passion that we've enjoyed in two films, right? The rest of this movie, after this dinner conversation, is going to be them walking and talking in beautiful European settings leading up to a bedroom where they can have sex all night. So they know that all of these underlying tensions... I do wonder, if Hank doesn't interrupt them with a phone call when they get to the hotel room, would this be just as gentle and romantic a movie for the second half of this story? Because I do get the sense that in the middle, at the 47-minute mark, once they're actually on the road walking towards their destination... They're much nicer to each other than they have been in the first half. Oh, not quite, though. Celine is picking a fight on that way. She's asking leading questions. <laughs> if you saw me on a train as I look today, would you ask me to get off the train with you? There's no right answer to that. <laughs> it's a horrible question, but it is the question, right? I mean, it's true. Would they? Would you repeat what you did as a 23-year-old now that you're 41? Of course not. I mean, she it's rhetorical. She knows she wouldn't. But I love the fact that he tried to answer it because he's like, am I in my current circumstance? Are you asking me, would I cheat on you with a theoretical you on a train? <laughs> he tries to answer correctly. I feel like he knows her games and even loves her for her crazy attempts to trap him and, and tries to outthink her. I mean, yeah, you're watching two chess players, but I think there's real love here in the middle of this movie. I think Jesse has always liked that game. To me, I don't want Celine too difficult, but Jesse, he likes that. He's into her. I get it. And yeah, I like that when she asks these questions, that's like, do I look fat in this? It's no one's situation. You drop the mic and walk away, men. <laughs> don't go down that black hole. Especially if you're looking to get laid tonight. And Jesse, as always, is looking to get laid tonight. Yeah, but he, you know, he always, I've gone off these stereotypes. He's the stereotypical American. She's a stereotypical French woman. Because they're kind of played like that. But yeah, he's joking around. He's playful. He's trying to get out of this difficult situation. I don't know if she's trying to pick a fight, but I think she has a bone to pick. I'll put it that way. You know, later on, she'll talk about, you know, there's a reason when you hear about a great woman, it's never until she hits her 50s because she's got to be cleaning the house and taking care of the kids and deal with that until she can do something great. Men, you know, you're always comparing yourself to younger men that did something great because you have the luxury to be able to do that. And I do feel like I have a lot of sympathy for Celine because I know she's looking worse than Jesse. It's always easier when you're a moviegoer to be gravitating more towards the funny, charming, laid-back one, right? The one that's not emotional, the one that's being rational. Jesse oftentimes looks like the calming, normal one in this relationship, and she, well, by the end of it, I mean, he calls her the mayor of Crazy Town, and she does everything to, to get elected to that position. <laughs> yeah, I'll say I side with Jesse a lot in these arguments, because I think you're right about what Stephanos and his wife were thinking. Sometimes, maybe not a good fuck, but sometimes just a night away from it can allow perspective. And he is trying to have that night, and the whole way, she's like picking at the scab. The entire walk, 
She's picking at the scab. Every time they stop, they stop at a church and she's picking at how her daughters want them to be married because at the end of every fairy tale, there's a marriage and they're not married and they hide that. Every place they go, she is just focusing on some area of their relationship that is problematic and he's just willing to go and have a conversation. Now, admittedly, he's had a great summer and... (laughs) She has not. Come on, they got Ben and Jerry's in Greece. It couldn't have been that bad of a summer. (laughs) I was shocked by this revelation as well. I didn't look at their hands. I just presumed they were married. I assumed there were rings on those fingers. I just assumed that that was what they would want. The fact that he moved to Paris and they didn't get married. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but that was... I was like the kids. This should have happened. Why did they hold out? My senses Celine says it much later is that she's just kind of paranoid about men trying to domesticate her and i'd feel like they're not married because she didn't want to be i agree completely i think it's her doing it and now it's her kind of complaining about it she creates these situations with her own neuroses and i feel for jesse having to navigate the shark filled waters yeah it's not pretty to watch but i think it's important to keep the perspective of where Celine is coming from, because without it, she does look like a crazy bitch. But when in kept in context, you do realize that she's given up a lot for someone that may not be completely appreciating all of the sacrifice. They are taking for granted each other. And she ends up looking more sane than him when it gets down to Hank, right? I mean, he thinks that he can do something with Hank now that he's 14 years old that she knows, even if she gave up her career aspirations and moved to Chicago, the wife's only going to let him see him twice a month. They're not going to have the relationship that he wants. They don't have it now. Look at it this way. He spent all summer with his kid and he didn't even know Hank had a girlfriend. She's the one getting phone calls from Hank, not Jesse. I found that very odd. It made me wonder if he might have a crush on his stepmom. I was wondering that too. Yeah, they're in Greece. Isn't that like Oedipus Rex and all that? Yeah, kind of thinking <laughs> that. I don't know why I thought that, but it just, that's the vibe I got is why is he, he has a mother, although he doesn't seem that close to her. Maybe she's just the mother he wants, but the fact that he texted and called her twice and not his own dad struck me as odd and I was trying to decipher that. No, I take it to mean it's because she's closer. She tried harder. She was the one that actually spent time with him and he neglected his own kid. He didn't do what he's claiming he will do if he moves to Chicago. And I think that's the major reason she's not willing to hear about relocating. She knows that he is too detached a person to ever be the guy that he claims he wants to be. But he's not as detached as he comes off either. I mean, she is a little bit bitchy because she talks about how she marks her life by the children and is surprised that he can remember when they both got chicken pox. I mean, he is involved more than she'll allow. You're siding with her a lot, Stuart, but she is playing the martyr here more than is perhaps deserved. I'm siding with her because it's so easy to slag on her. And I do feel like in the climax of this movie, she looks really bad. Yeah, I did try to find sympathy for her. I just couldn't, though. There is a line. Celine says that Jesse, you know, he would go on these two-hour walks every morning and just to contemplate life and think about his writing. And if he really was that disconnected from his son, I don't know. I never really got a strong impression of that. I think that if that is true, that would have been important to bring out more to see that she was more rational because 
Again, every time. The fact that Hank calls her and Jesse's like, give me the phone, give me the phone. And she just hangs up. And that and that's what ruins the whole sex in the hotel. <laughs> he didn't say, give me the phone. He said, why didn't you give me the phone after she's hung up? He was waving. He was waving. Yeah, he was asking for the phone. No, he never asked for the phone. He was gesturing in a way. He didn't verbally ask for the phone. His every motion, he was either asking an airplane to land over there or saying, give me the phone. Okay, I didn't pick up on that, honestly. I picked up on his surprise that he just presumed he would get a chance to talk to. It's his kid, after all. I mean, she has no biological connection to this kid. I think it's key that this kid is confiding in her. It doesn't feel like a crush. It feels like he can relate to her and confess romantic feelings about his own summer crush to her in a way that he never could with his dad. And I think that's key to feeling sympathy for Celine and for validating the sense that she works harder at being close to her family than Jesse does. I know that Jesse loves his kids, but I do think that Celine works harder at it. I think the film then fails to show us that. And again, we're getting a day in this couple's life. We don't know what's gone on the last nine years. We get little snippets here. So it, it is difficult. And they're trying to work within this form where we spend a few hours with this couple and we got to piece together all of this. I, the way it's presented, Jesse just comes looking better to me than Celine. She seems, you said brittle. Yeah, very brittle. At one point, she even says, I have to struggle being a good mom and even wanting to take care of my girls. I'd, I'd rather be saving the environment. Brittle is not a word I'd apply, though, because she's coming with daggers out. She is ready for this fight, and she's not going to be broken apart by it. She may be an emotionally unstable state, but brittle makes it sound like if Jesse said the wrong thing, she would be shattered. No, I get the entire sense from her in this film, and it's very heavily influenced by the third act, but that she is prepared for life without Jesse. Yeah, no, brittle, not that she's delicate. I'm not saying she's like, oh, you have to handle her with kid gloves. No, she's a fighter. She's a better fighter than he is. She's much more confrontational. Brittle in the sense that she's angry, that she's always looking for a way to get him. And it's 65 minutes, the sun is setting, still there, still there. When it's gone, it is gone. I, I felt love and romance in this middle section, but almost instantly evaporates when they go to that hotel, that cheesy... I mean, come on, they have seen some great, beautiful parts of Europe in their travels. This is a silly hotel room. I would be disappointed as well to walk in and see this. Linkletter, Delpy, and Hawk did address this. They talked about going to one of those colloquial Greek places, you know, that apparently when people go to Greece, they don't want it to have advanced past the 16th century. But <laughs> they decided intentionally to go to another side, that there are luxury resorts in Greece that you can get couples massages. I did think it was a great symbolic moment when they're watching that sunset. The last film we watched was before sunset, this romantic film, and she's just kind of counting down the minutes, going, going, gone, like there's the end of the romance, it's time to move on. And yeah, they go to this hotel, we spent all this time, we've seen Vienna, we've seen Paris, Notre Dame, like all these great scenes, we've seen Greece, these ruins. Yeah, and now we're at, it's not a Holiday Inn, but it's still just a hotel. It could be anywhere in this universe. I mean, like, he literally goes in, I don't think he means for it to be funny, but he's like, oh look, the bathtub, like, He's trying to find anything. That's like, oh, yeah, isn't it amazing they have plumbing here? I mean, come on. <laughs> what about the scene in the lobby, though, where the clerk asks her to sign the book? I think mm. Delpy's best bit of acting is right there. Her face acting, 
her just timidness, her demurring from signing the book, and then the way that Jessie just completely overrides her. She'll sign it and shoves it in front of her, and that look she gives, that's when it goes to hell. It's not the sun setting. It's when she has to face those books, and then his completely overriding her feelings because he's in front of an adoring fan, and a female one at that, and she is shoved to the side where she'll just do what he says to please this other woman in the lobby. That's where it all gets fucked up. And to me, it's about perspective. She's like bitter. I, it, again, it's going to come out later that she hates that she, her life is being written down in these books. And that's how that moment, here's an adoring fan. Like, oh my gosh, you're the woman who's in these books. I didn't think of it as anything than someone that was excited to meet her, that she was a celebrity to this person. And she takes it as a negative. Like, she takes everything. But how many times has this happened to her, you gotta wonder? Yeah, and people are presuming that they know her because they read a book that he wrote. Because he said it, it must be true about her. She doesn't have a voice. She can't have her own identity. It is defined by what he has written about them. I think she's afraid to be alone with him. You know, like, they get in that room and she's like, I miss my kids. I mean... Like, the whole point was, like, we never get time alone, but I get the sense, once she's in there, she wants out. I did find it interesting early on when they're having that conversation with the rest of the group, like, they try to get out, go into that hotel, and Stephanos is like, no, you're going. She says a lot of low blows in this room, but I think the one that's the most hurtful for me, the one that's like, oh, I mean, before she even really gets in it, is that she talks about how she used to love the red in his beard, but it's gone gray. And now she sees it in her girl's eyelashes. To me, the translation is obvious. It's like, I used to love you, and now I love our children. Oh, I didn't read it like that, but that is a good reading of it. I just thought it was talking about getting old. I mean, she refers to herself as being a fat-assed middle-aged mom. I thought she was just talking about he's not as attractive as he used to be either. No, I took it as a very pointed <laughs> remark, just like that sunset going away. Yeah, that thing I used to love about you, that reddish hair. That's gone too. It's in my kids. I'm going to give them the attention now. It's all going back to his first marriage, you know, where they were two people that ran a daycare. And, and that's where this is going now. Yeah, this is the part where I stop really defending Celine. I think she gets really paranoid and vicious here. And I think she's out of control. I mean, she's out of line. Jesse wants to be rational. He wants to talk about this move to Chicago. And she just can't not be mean as this fight progresses. We get a titty shot for the first time. We're finally like seeing nudity. I'm like, oh, please have sex. Because if you have sex, you won't need to talk. And you don't need to talk about these things. But man, the phone rings. And they're again talking about the move to Chicago. And it's, it's on. I couldn't believe this was the first titty shot in the trilogy. Because I really remembered there being one before. But I guess I'm just thinking, Julie Delpy apparently has offered in all the previous movies. She took her top off for American Werewolf in Paris. I didn't know why she wouldn't for this trilogy. Killing Zoe, I think she's very French. She's very liberated in that way. We know how that French ass works. Yeah, she's fine with it. And like I said, I would be enjoying it as a nice moment if I wasn't afraid of them talking to one another. What used to be so charming about them, now I'm like, oh God, someone is going to say the wrong thing. And... Yeah, no sex tonight. I mean, very quickly, she's like comparing him to the final solution and Cheney and all of this. I mean, she goes low. Her hyperbole is just all over the place. And here's the thing. We're all siding with Jesse then? You calling her crazy? Uh, I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. She is the mayor of crazy town. I will cast that vote. 
I would say that she is out of line in this discussion, yes. We don't have a woman on this podcast, but I will tell you, down the line, Marjorie sided with Celine, and I sided <laughs> with Jesse, and that's why we had a tense conversation. It, we actually had no <laughs> conversation coming out of the theater. It's like, neither one of us wanted to speak first, because we knew. I did watch this with my girlfriend. She sided with Jesse as well. There's other things that we had deep conversations about with this film, but no, she was not Team Celine. She was Team Jesse. so. And what's funny is on the commentary, Linkletter said that by and large, the men defend Celine and the women defend Jesse, which I found hmm. interesting. And you know what the difference may be is my girlfriend has children. So seeing this woman saying she thought about suicide when she had her kids and she doesn't want Jesse to see Hank, maybe that brought out the parental side. And wanting to, you know, go with the parent that seemed to have the best in line for their kids. I don't think that she didn't want Hank and Jesse to be together. I think she, again, I think she had a better relationship with Hank than Jesse did. I think that she knew that Jesse wasn't being practical about what moving to the U.S. would really do for a 14-year-old boy. He just, Jesse's being selfish. Jesse needs that kid in his life because it will make him feel important and maybe he doesn't feel important anymore. But that kid never gave any indication that he wants his dad to move to Chicago. And she doesn't want to move to Chicago. So why isn't Jesse listening? What's funny is she gets that point through. You said that Jesse wants to have the rational conversation, but I think you're right what you said earlier. It's Celine who's realizing he's like this every time. And is it really worth it to uproot our entire life just to see him for a couple holidays and a few extra weekends? Is it worth it for 30 days out of the year to do this, especially knowing that his ex-wife's going to put up the big fight? And it seems like it might put it aside until Jesse says, yeah, I just fucked this whole thing up. And she takes that personally. Well, he, he said, I fucked my whole life over the way you sing. Like, yeah, <laughs> that is pointing the blame pretty strongly. Nina Simone. I think it's Nina's fault. That's not what he said at that moment, though, on the sofa. He just said, I fucked this thing up. It wasn't over the way you say it. that was a, that was at a different point. But he does say it. And I do think the real subtext here is, again, like the last movie, it's asking, did that night of passion fulfill their dreams or ruin their lives? Did the idea of them getting together actually ruin the chance of them being more actualized, happy people apart? If they had never met in Vienna, would he have had a better marriage and be with that son? Yeah, it really is more of a whole. Watching these three movies back to back. To back. In the span of three weeks. I definitely see a progression here that I didn't when I saw Before Midnight in theaters, not having seen Before Sunset in nine years, and not having seen Before Sunrise in 17. This felt so out of left field that they'd be fighting so hard. But now, recently re-watching Before Sunset and seeing the third act of that, where Celine does have her bit of a breakdown in the car, and it's kind of a fight there, even their early fight on, and knowing where it was going, seeing those early movies with this one in my mind shows me this is a straight line progression. This is a trend line, and it really does fit. But man, is it hard to watch. Yeah, there's real consequences for loving another individual. That's what comes clear here, that oftentimes movies tell us that that's everything. The highest virtues in life are that finding that passion 
and living that passion, there are consequences for living in that way. And we're seeing the fallout here. I never expected the movie to show it so bleakly. I thought that it comes up. Yeah, it came up in the last movie, but I never expected it to get so ugly. And again, I never expected Celine to be so cruel. I mean, you're no Henry Miller. To call the man out as being a bad lover. Ouch! <laughs> yeah. Of course, I mean, that could have been said in the heat of passion, but... Oh, it is. I don't even believe when she says, I don't love you anymore. That didn't feel like a real line. It just felt like, I'm going to keep throwing bricks at you until you bleed. Her whole thing is, she calls him out for trying to be rational, and as a dude, yeah. When you're in an argument, like, I think that's the guy's, like, response. Well, let's just be rational and think this out. Like, that's your guard. That's what you put up. And when he does that, she's like, okay, let's be rational. Tell me the truth. Did you fuck this girl? That slapped me in the face because this is the love story for the ages, right? This is, I've been watching them fall in love for 18 years. You mean he cheated on her? And not all that long after Before Sunset? I see it in Jesse's character now. Rewatching this trilogy, he's a horny fucker and... All three movies, his end goal is getting Celine in bed. But that he would cheat on her seemed like I couldn't believe that a movie went there because I think, as you said, Stuart, that shows real consequences. That hits home. That becomes a real thing. Normally, in movies, adultery is the mortal sin. There's no coming back. In real life, there can be instances of adultery and marriages can survive it. But to see that happen in this movie... It's like, did he? He never admits it. He did. Come on. It's obvious. He won't answer the question. Yes, he did it. Did she cheat on him? Yes. See, I didn't take it. He was like stretching. He's like, well, you at least blew the guy. Like, I thought he was stretching, but I definitely feel he cheated. I think they both did. And Linkletter kind of confirms it in the commentary, but I wasn't sure if they were both throwing baseless accusations or if they both cheated or if he cheated and just wanted to feel justified in it, I think the movie itself left it ambiguous. Yeah, you know, I think the problem is, is that because of my meta-knowledge, I know that Uma Thurman had an affair with Quentin Tarantino, and yeah, he had the affair with the babysitter. There was mutual cheating. I just took that as coming from Ethan Hawke, not just Jesse. But yeah, people cheat. I think he even has quotes like that. At the time of the promotion of this movie, he kind of shocked some reporters by being like, we're sexual beings and monogamy is not practical and we shouldn't be boxed in by someone's all-world definition of a monogamous marriage. I can still have a good relationship and step out. Yeah, he says we shouldn't live in a world where we own each other, but he's wanted to be with her this whole time. I don't know if that's ownership, but it, it seems like he's going back. I think Linkletter, though, or whoever came up with this part of the conversation, I know they all got writing credits. It's an easy out, I think, if both of them cheated on each other. It's like, oh, we're equal. No one's the worst. It's kind of like what they do with Jesse's ex-wife. All we're told about her, she's, she's this evil, alcoholic, psychotic bitch. It, it seems to let the audience know it's okay that Jesse left her for Celine. I think you could have gone more complicated, have it muddier, but all we get is what we hear from these characters, and they make it a little too easy to take sides. They never took a vow. I mean, when we get back to morality, if they're not married then obviously it's still cheating. I'm not going to debate that. But is it the moral sin if they didn't make the commitment in the first place? I mean, they both seem like very free-thinking individuals. I would think that if Celine weren't so worked up about the other problems in her life, I don't know that this always bugs her. I think she brought this up because she was going to win this fight. And 
she knew she could win with this angle. I agree that she seems, maybe it's a European thing, but that not necessarily an open marriage or open relationship, but the occasional outside activity might be okay with her. And she's just looking for any ammunition she can put in her gun at this point. But by the same token, whether or not you're married, I think that the popular view of any kind of cheating is it's a relationship ender. I think it's even more of a relationship ender when you don't have to go through the legal formalities of a divorce. True enough. Yes. Whether or not you're going with the Ten Commandments covet thy neighbor's wife, well, if they weren't married, you weren't really wife, right? But I think that, yeah, they have less to lose. She was never committed enough, assuming it was her, to get married. It makes it easier to back out, right? But I think the average viewer that's into this trilogy, that is watching this third film, they've seen the other two. I, I think that's a shocker. It's a shocker to me to find out that they weren't married, that they were just shacking up, living together, and that this, you know, was supposed to be this beautiful romance, that it never bloomed. I don't know. Maybe I have old world views and that, like, that's the ultimate symbol. And I think most American audience, that's the ultimate symbol of your love is you put a ring on it. And that's not going on here. So it, it does mess with expectations a bit that they never got married. Even if they cheat on each other, this is supposed to be this great love. And that is a letdown. And maybe it's just my view because I was never that into marriage as a concept. If I'm in love with someone and committed to them, what did it matter if I had a legal piece of paper binding it? But Yeah, it should be said, Arnie, you're very into commitment. But uh, yes, you commit before you put the ring on. Yeah, and the ring, the paper, that's all circumstance and tax benefits. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's for the accountants. Yeah, what matters is the commitment, the trust, and the love. And so whether or not they were married, when they weren't, I'm like, oh, I can kind of go with that sensibility. They're of my generation. I grew up with them. If they chose to just be a married couple, especially with him being a writer and her being a professional, a lot of people don't take the other's last name anymore. I was fine with that, and I was still shocked by the accusation of cheating. And the real question, the suspense, we're back in suspenseful territory, whereas this one felt much more languid and had less stakes for much of this movie. Now, the real question is, for me, it's not even, are they going to stay together? Because they might. I think the ending of this movie in the cafe hints at the fact that she's going to go back in the room and have sex with him. The real question is, is the love gone? I mean, did that passion go away? Are they different people now? Has time changed them? Or are they still the American and the French girl getting off the train in Vienna? At least with Jesse, I think he's still the same. I love that this end scene, she's gone out, she's sitting at a table at a cafe and he comes to see her and she's like, get away, get away. And you know, he does this whole like, I've traveled back in time from 80 year old you. I found that very romantic. Earlier, he got called out for not being romantic and the this whole little thing he does with her. Like, I still believe he wants us. He's still fighting for this. And that's why I call this a romance because he's fighting for it. They've gone through some deep, dark shit through this argument like there are some mean things said and he still wants to make it work her i don't know she goes into her bimbo thing and that he likes so i i think she's coming around to it but for me this isn't even necessarily the first time this kind of explosive argument has happened i because of that line like he gets like this every time his son leaves perhaps this is something they've gone through multiple times and this is just the latest instance, but they're always 
coming back together and they fight and they scream and then they, you know, Jesse does this little romantic gesture and they fall in love again and it's this repeating cycle. To me, that's the romance is that not that you fight, every couple fights, it's that you come back together and, and make it work. But is he just a good storyteller? Because I just feel like he's doing what he always does. He just wants to get laid again? Yeah, well, he's putting out an, an idea. He's making it, he's packaging it in a way that makes it exciting, just like getting off the train. We posited that Stephanos is just like, hey, go and bang each other and all those fights you're having will go away. Maybe that's what it is about. Like, you you have these hard times, and then you reconnect physically, and, and you forget about that, and you're good for a while. And, and maybe that's what love is. You could have those little moments where things are perfect, and you, you get through the shit somehow. I actually really disagree. I think this is a much bigger fight than we've seen before. First of all, if they were having this fight every night, that wouldn't be the movie, right? Right. It's because they're having this fight that we're seeing this moment of their life. They've been together for nine years. That was my complaint coming in. Why are we picking this moment? We're picking this moment because this is a big fight that matters. And I see that when he tries to do his storytelling. I'm a time traveler from the future. And, I, and then she's like, just stop the stupidity. We're not in one of your stories. And finally, Jesse gets real. He's like, I put up with plenty of your shit. And if you think I'm some dog that'll keep coming back, then you're wrong. That's when it changes for him. And all of a sudden, all the shit she shoveled, this is where the fight means, okay, she said she may not love him anymore. I think that may be a step further than they've gone in previous fights. But now he's ready to say, okay, I'm not going to put up with this anymore either. And yes, they're going to fuck that night. They're both horny people. But I don't know if then they're going to go back together or if she'll take the government job and he may, as she put it, go buy peanut butter in Chicago. It is dependent if Jesse does better than kissy, kissy, titty, titty, pussy. <laughs> but that's all you need. He's a man of simple pleasures. <laughs> Every one of these movies is built on an ending of ambiguity. We never know if this is the last time they will ever see each other. And I think it's just as true in The Midnight as it was in sunset and sunrise. Yeah, I mean, that's the truth of it, is I now think, I didn't think there'd be a second after the first, I didn't think there'd be a third after the second. I think, unless now playing has performed its magic and we curse them, that there will be a fourth one. And I also have a sneaking suspicion that it will be in the States. Yes, you're on the, my wavelength, yes. Yeah, but will we be around in nine years to do it? <laughs> Well, the question is, will they be together still after nine years, or will they be reuniting after a period of separation in nine years? Their kids are six, so nine years, too young for graduation, but maybe some event would bring them back together. Yeah, after sunrise, that's what I'm predicting, yes. What happens after the love has gone? And it would be a new chapter in their story. I'm not saying I want these two to break up. God knows I love them together, but it would be interesting to see what getting back together is for them, having this long love and then taking a break. That's kind of what I expect seeing this after this time. But then again, I expected them to meet at that train platform six months later. So what the fuck did I know? <laughs> yeah, they don't know. Linkletter fully admitted, you know, people, of course, asked at the Q&A. He was like, I don't know if we will ever make another one. I'm not committing to it. If we have a story we want to tell, we will tell it whenever that story appears. So he's not even promising that it'll come in nine years. It may come next year. Who knows? 
but he is not going to say whether they're going to do another one, but he is open to doing it because he likes these characters. And, and if they find the right story and the right hook and can recreate the dynamic, which amazingly they've done for three consistent films, then there will be another installment to this franchise. Assuming that he doesn't win an Oscar and then becomes so in demand that this becomes beneath him. School of Rock 2! <laughs> They are doing School of the Rock TV series, but I think Linkletter is an indie filmmaker at heart. Uh, keep in mind, Boyhood is an indie movie. His studio projects, some have been successful, most of them have not. I think that he still gains the most enjoyment out of making things in his backyard in Austin. Or Greece or Vienna or Paris. Yeah, well, I think it was Greece <laughs> because, let's face it, they were pretty cheap for that time. Their whole government had collapsed. Much like Celine and Jesse, they were in turmoil and... It was easy to make a movie again on the cheap in a beautiful location. Actually, they hadn't set a country. It was the location scouts. They found the house. That house was a real house owned by a real writer that they were able to get access to. They were ready to possibly return to France or London or someplace else. They just found a good set. Again, gotta be because Greece, I'm telling you, the, the whole thing had <laughs> collapsed. Well, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Before Midnight? Jacob. This is a film that is hard to watch at times, especially if you have life experience. I got life experience. I've had bad marriages. I, I've had bad relationships. This hit very close to home. And, you know, I was watching this with my girlfriend. We, we had serious conversation because of this film because we saw certain things in it that reflected on us. But, you know, it was like a form of therapy. It's like, how do we come together after this kind of thing? How do we, we want to keep that spark going? And that's why I, I see this film. This is not your well, I don't know. Arnie, you're not calling it a romance, and I don't think it's a typical romance, but I do see it as a, a couple that once had something, and then maybe they still do have it, and they're trying to keep it. They're trying to keep it going, or at least maybe Jesse is. And uh, for me, this is the strongest of the trilogy thus far. You know, I came into this kind of like, oh, these are films where people just sit around and talk, and that first one, I'm like, eh, it was all right. It's kind of pretentious, but now I'm really invested in this couple. I, I can't believe I got to wait another eight years <laughs> to get another film to see what's going to happen in, in their 50s. But I want that. So this, for me, this is the strongest of the trilogy. It's a, a strong recommend for Before Midnight. And, you know, I'm going to go in reverse order when I'm ranking these. Three, two, one. They just keep getting more and more complicated and, and dealing, getting more and more real. And I like that. I like to see that in film and to go out of that typical romance spot and deal with the complicated issues. Stuart. Honestly, the quality control is so good on these films, I am really struggling to rank this trilogy. I do think they are all of the same piece. And I think that while people may have preferences because each one demands different things from you, they're all equally well-written and good and, and performed. I mean, they're all excellent movies. It may be the most consistently satisfying trilogy I've ever seen. That said, for this movie specifically, it's obviously a much tougher sit to watch people you like attack one another. I gain no joy out of watching Celine melt down this time in a really mean way that I always have on her side. I always like her take on things, but I hate seeing her take down Jesse in the way that she does here in the climax of this film. It is no fun to watch that, but I do think, yeah, you mentioned therapy. I think it's therapeutic to watch people converse after spending nine years of repressing their regret and second-guessing their decision to get together, I think it's very therapeutic to watch them deal in the way that they do. I mean, they are who they are with, yeah, really difficult questions. Romance, oftentimes, it's romanticized. You know, it's the happy ending 
that we don't ask any further questions. Happy Ending is where this movie starts, and where it goes is quite challenging, quite remarkable. A high, high recommend. So, gun to your head, ranking them? I think for me, when I think about the pleasure of rewatching or the intensity by which I watch them, two for me is the strongest. I think three is second, and I think one after that. But talk to me a couple minutes, and I may change all of that. But I do think two is my favorite, and then the other two flip a coin. I'm also, of course, recommending this film. And yeah, I think it was a great conversation starter. The key was the conversations were tentative because we'd just seen this couple have this really brutal fight. And so we didn't want to have a really brutal fight. And so it was a little quiet as we walked out of there and we're like, so that was pretty bad of Selena. Selene, but Jesse cheated on her. What do you want for dinner? <laughs> it was like a chess game between us where you're just like, I'm going to move this pawn. What happens? When I'm ranking them, it is different now than it was when I was young. Coming into this, I thought for sure the ranking would be 1-3-2 because I just remembered two because of my initial reaction that I explained last week. I didn't think it would hold up. Now, my ranking is two is the best. I really think, and it may be because of where I am in my stage of life, but that's the one I could rewatch. It felt the most glorious cinematically with its long takes and everything. I liked how it felt like a stage play. You know, it's intense, but still romantic. Yeah. You can still feel happy at the end of it. You could take a date to that one. Yeah. Even though I felt like Kevin Bacon Hawk was a little too horny in that one. Yeah. It was a romantic film. And I think just seeing people trying to fulfill their life, I liked that a lot. Three has a lot of that cinematic long shot going forward as well, especially in that car ride, but there's less of it. I would put one as my second favorite, and then three, and I really had to f struggle between one and three. Three I'm going to put at the bottom. It's still a recommend, but I do find all those talks around the table to be a little obvious and pretentious, and that's going to ding it. And it's the only ding I can give the trilogy, as I think that was, as Stuart, the phrase you used was on the nose. Yeah, and I didn't like that because I'm sitting there thinking, what is this conversation saying about the film and the couple versus just being brought into the movie? It pushes me away. I think it's the weakest for the first half of the trilogy. I think, though, the second half is immensely strong in a brutal way. I mean, like, we've discussed certain scenes or certain movies, like 28 Days Later or certain scenes in Kick-Ass that are just hard to watch and hard to rewatch. Going back into Before Midnight was really hard knowing I'd have to sit through this fight again because it's a tough one to watch, which means it's great filmmaking, great acting. So a strong recommend. It's hard to rank them, but yeah, I'm going to go 2-1-3. Yeah, you know, I'll say this much. I didn't dislike the early part of the movie, but Celine and Jesse are best when you can get them alone. So it'll be really interesting to see how they manage to do that, if they manage to do that ever again. But while we may not be getting a before sequel ever, we are going to get another Richard Linkletter film next week of a similar nature. It's going to ask similar questions about who we are and if time changes us, but it's going to be done from a kid's perspective rather than the parents. You're going to see Ethan Hawke again, and I think you're going to see a little bit of Jesse and Celine in their parenting style as we watch a kid grow up from a six-year-old daydreamer to an 18-year-old man going off to college. It's Boyhood. It's a big film. It probably is going to win the Oscar this year. 
and we'll be talking about it next week. I'm looking forward to that because a fucking leprechaun film made it so I couldn't see that in theaters. Ah, <laughs> oh, the priorities of now playing. It's almost as good as Leprechaun Origins. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> What I found funny is there was a Q&A with Linkletter, Hawk, and Delpy on the Before Midnight Blu-ray. And Hawk was like, yeah, you just don't get to see films like this where it's made over a span of years. And I'm sitting there like, dude, aren't you in Boyhood? (laughs) (laughs) They hadn't talked about it yet. This was a secret project. No one knew he was making it until he brought it to Sundance. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing that for the first time. And that will be our review next week. Then in two weeks... For people who want us to get back to kind of our more genre roots, we're going to be doing a comic book movie, Kingsman, The Secret Service. It got bumped from October, and we're reviewing it live. Our first ever live podcast review, Tuesday, February 17th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. If you're not in either of those time zones, there's Google. (laughs) Yeah, you'll be able to hear the show at some point. You're going to edit it down, put it out. It will be a downloadable event. But the real show will be if you can join us live, ask us the questions, hear us make mistakes, see how it... We put this show together. I'm just as excited to see Kingsman as I am to do a live show. It's going to be really thrilling. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we hope you can join us live. The live show will not be released. We will edit it, and then it will be out later that week on the podcast feed. So that's two weeks from tonight. Mark your calendars. Make your time. If you're over in the UK, get some coffee brewing that night. Stay up late with us. We want to see you there. There you go. Yeah, the pubs will just be closing. We accept all drunken tweets and texts. We'll answer all your questions. (laughs) We don't promise to be done before midnight, but we do promise to be done before sunrise. At least in our time zone. (laughs) Yes. So we'll be back next week with Boyhood. And until then, have a nice life. We've met before. Summer 94. We even fell in love. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. I vaguely remember someone sweet and romantic who made me feel like I wasn't alone anymore. Someone who had respect for who I was. That's me. I'm that guy. I don't think so. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You gonna see him again? We haven't talked about that yet. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Richard Linklater before film. For the greatest night in your life. <laughs> Thank you very much. And also, join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Tuesday, February 17th for our live review of Kingsman, The Secret Service. I feel like this is uh, some dream world we're in, you know? Yeah, it's so weird. It's like our time together is just ours. It's our own creation. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including The Aviator, Gangs of New York, The Social Network, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Catwoman, and more. Well, I like I like stories with a meaning behind it, like a really beautiful love story. Oh, sure, yeah. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. I mean, most people, myself included, just sit around and bitch. (laughs) Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. 
Everything that's interesting costs a little bit of money. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And if you like it, I mean, if you feel that's something to your life in any way, then you can pay me whatever you feel like. Now Playing's B4 series is edited by Heath and Arnie. I'm giving you my whole life, okay? I got nothing larger to give. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Uh, Sprechen Sie English? Yeah, of course. Because yeah. uh, we speak German for a change. Now Playing is not affiliated with Castle Rock Entertainment, Columbia Pictures, Warner Independent Pictures, or Sony Pictures Classics. The before films are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Okay, well, you're very, very smart. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. We all see the world through our own tiny keyhole, right? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Let me sing you a waltz Out of nowhere, out of my blues Let me sing you a waltz About this lovely one night Baby, you are gonna miss that plane. I know. And a few others, directed by Richard Linkletter. What is that? It's my, uh, someone down the street la- leaning on the horn. Oh, horn, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not domestic violence. I mean, you did that, you did that in the days before a cell phone, you know, because, like, I don't want to get up and ring your doorbell, but yeah, shit. Just send a text, man. Right? doing like morse code <laughs> yeah i agree it's like maximum overdrive shit <laughs> will you go fill up his fuel tank <laughs> actually there's a whole series of trucks outside should i be worried about a green goblin semi going through my lawn i'm not filling your gas tank sorry i'm gonna wait the comment out <laughs> i did not expect this podcast to go to maximum overdrive mm. Jesus Christ. Wow. Yeah, I think so we, we I live in a rough neighborhood, so I'm like someone's gonna go out there and beat him. I just that's all we have to wait for. Someone will might, not. It put might up be with the girl shit. downstairs after yeah. hearing what she did to her boyfriend. Yeah, it might be her in the car. <laughs> I did before them there was actually drug dealers, like they had like the shoes on the wire and everything. Oh jeez. I have shoes on the wire in my neighborhood. What does that shoes mean? Shoes on the telephone wire, that's a bad sign. Oh yeah, it means you you can buy there. Uh oh. Yeah, but anyway, like, we literally had crackheads. I remember one time watching somebody with tinfoil lighten up and then driving away. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Has it stopped? I can't hear it. It did, and then it's... Mm, no. I swear no, I hear it, but I hear maybe it I'm just... 
Yeah. I think there's even a second car now. <laughs> Uh, it's it's like going under the tunnel uh, from the 405 to the 5. Everyone just wants to honk. That's that's what it's going to turn into. You know, LA's not really a honking culture. As much as we are, like, gridlock traffic, I don't feel like... No. We honk when there's, like, a tunnel and you want to hear an echo for some reason. Yeah, I don't feel like... Everyone's so afraid of pissing somebody off that's important that might do something for them <laughs> that they, they don't lay on the horn. You know, I'd feel bad if like it ends up like this person's being attacked and they're trying to get help or something, and I'm like, ah, oh, they'll shut up eventually. Yeah, she's dead now. Nope, Jeez. still alive. You know, before midnight was dark, I didn't think it was going to go this dark in the podcast, though. Oh, boy. Come on. Give it up. Is it still going? I can't tell if that's just noise or if that's actually no, they it. they really are. Like, and the problem is I'm not even close. And I would go out there. Believe me, <laughs> I have very thin patience at this point. I have no problem walking up to someone and saying, shut the fuck up. But it's like a long walk. <laughs> it would take me five minutes to get this settled. And even then, could I guarantee once I got back that they wouldn't have a spite? <laughs> Keep honking. Yeah. Sounds like it stopped. They're dead. All right. <laughs> oh, there it goes. <laughs> This is unfair. We've never had this before. Never, never. And I live in a noisy neighborhood sometimes, but this is this is Jesus uncharacteristic. Christ, they're serious about whatever it is. Yeah, I can't believe no one has intervened. I feel like walking there, and it's halfway yeah. across the country. <laughs> There's going to be a story in the front page tomorrow. It's it's actually on a different street, but the sound carries really well. Sometimes you can actually hear the ocean from my um. A window because the acoustics are just so it's much further than it actually sounds so you get all the noise <laughs> yep it's nice when it's the ocean wave <laughs> yeah um not so nice right now oh i'm hearing silence do we dare nah, you don't hear silence no i hear it i hear it still <laughs> it's just become the new white noise yeah it you know, is like, it just I, literally I, sounds like the horn is the background yeah someone's yelling now so that's good <laughs> I, I didn't realize we're going to be delayed 10 minutes because of a yeah, car horn. Exactly. Before midnight is actually a <laughs> yes. question about this podcast. <laughs> Will we be done? Yeah, I, that was actually my opening line, is the now playing. But at least he wants to be done before midnight. Wait a minute. This might not be a car horn. What else could it be? Well, for a second, it sounded musical. It just sounds like a constant beep, though. It's... But it's not even like a alarm where it's like beep, no. beep, beep. No, no, yeah. No, it's definitely... It, yeah, it is more like Morse code than anything. Charlie Sheen isn't working much. Can he just fill the fucking car? <laughs> or, I'm sorry, Emilio. 